Hello and welcome to Cartoonist Kayfabe. My name is Jim Rugg. I'm Ed Piskor. We're going to look at Dan Clow's 8-Ball number 22, also known as Ice Haven. It's a graphic novel all contained in one issue. Before we open this up, I want to invite everybody to like, follow, and subscribe to the Cartoonist Kayfabe YouTube channel. When you hit that subscribe button, be sure and hit the bell icon next to it. That'll notify you when we post new videos. And if you're one of uh, one of the kayfabers out there that likes to track down these comics that we showcase, it'll give you a leg up on the competition because you'll be the first ones to see it. So be sure and hit that, that notification button. Also, let these videos play through to the end. That helps the YouTube algorithm share our videos with other comics fans that may not be familiar with Cartoonist Kayfabe yet. That is how we grow the channel, so we appreciate your help on that. And now, let's get into one of uh, my favorite comics, Ed. One of, in my opinion, the greatest comics I've ever read. And uh, first thing I'm going to do is tell you about this Ice Haven Pantheon edition. Yeah. This is a collection of the comic book reformatted a little bit to fit this kind of uh, horizontal landscape version. Some really nice flourishes. Dan Clowes, we've looked at his work before. Great designer, so of course these books all look spectacular. And this one always makes me laugh. There's a few extra pieces, and in, in, uh, we'll point those out as we go along. But I always remember him talking to uh, Terry Gross on Fresh Air. <laughs> and one of her first questions, what is, what is a neroglyphic picto assemblage? <laughs> That's a joke, <laughs> is what that is, Terry. Um, but a, uh, a, a fantastic comic, and as you can see, you know, kind of this as I mentioned, done in one graphic novel, uh, but in comic book format. And we will get into the particulars as we go through the book. It might be worth talking about too. Like this book comes along right after stuff like Jimmy Corrigan, uh, which launched the graphic novel or the narrative picto fiction or whatever that was called, <laughs> uh, into the NPR crowds yes. universe. Right. So, uh, I, I really, I never picked this up. I bristled at it. Cause like this came out when I was, post Kubert school, but still paying off debts, still working at the, uh, at the call center to, to, to pay off that school loan. And it really, um, it was that period in time where it's like, ah, oh, Dan, I, I see what you're doing. Like he, like he would go on those shows, NPR and whatnot, and talk about like, you know, I was drawing these comics on a hinge and I, I saw them as half pages while I was working on them. So it just felt right. Pantheon came a calling and, uh, yeah, cut the paper in half. It, it's thicker and can fit on a uh, bookshelf. I, I get that it's gauche to talk money and and to say that you did it for the loot or something like that, but that's how I that's how I took it. It's it's definitely a different audience. You know what I mean? Like the people that track down Eight Ball Twenty Two versus this book, like they're never going to see this content if it's if there's no spine put on it. But that said, that hinge part's interesting because like going through it this week revisiting, it looks so good in this format. Mm -hmm. You know, like this is one of the pages that stood out to me. But several of these spreads, like they all kind of look like. It could have been designed this way. Yeah, it's it's pretty impressive. And again, I think that goes back to Dan Clowes just being a master designer. Yeah. So, this is the motif that he did uh, on the complete eight ball covers, where he took, you know, as many of his characters as possible, or in this case, every character uh, within this story, down to the blue bunny who doesn't show up in his anthropomorphic cartoon self, but just has the stuffed animal, gets them all. All on the cover. I feel like you could have put that bunny on this building, raising <laughs> top, hell, as we're gonna see. Top uh... of the world, ma. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's um, it's got its Twin Peaks elements, man. There's the Lynchian bits here. When you when you uh, think of Cloud's work uh, and Lynch comes to mind, it's it's almost always like a velvet glove cast in iron. But for the sort of interpersonal 
weird Lynchian kind of relationships, th this is the one. Yeah, for sure. Might as well be the log lady right there. Hey, you know what? Let me see this one more time. One other note on this. Mr. Wonderful. Did you ever see Mr. Wonderful? It Got was in the uh, room. It was serialized, I think, on NewYorkTimes.com, maybe. They had done, like, several of these. On the su on the Sunday pages, I believe. Yeah, that sounds uh, right. They, they did, like, three or four rounds Hernandez of, did one. They did three or four rounds of, like, sun Sunday funnies with literate... Uh, kind of cartoonist. Jaime, Seth did one, I think. Yeah. And, and one other person. Whenever Klaus collected it, it was in a similar format. So yeah. I mentioned that because I do feel like you'll see him do things and then it'll be almost like applied to the next book. Um, so the premise here, 29 stories in full color. These are all the characters of a small town named Icehaven. And uh, one of the characters is kidnapped, David. And it's sort of like how these various characters respond to that, you know, how it affects this small town life. It's it's so cool, man, because you 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 say that as like the the story point or plot point, and this is not a plot driven comic. Like if it was almost anybody else, that kidnapping would be the focus, and uh, all all sort of strips would be pointing in that direction to try right. to like help this kid. But it happens, and it's resolved in the background as people are just kind of like living their lives uh, in, in this universe. Man, all right, let's dive in. Any, any other uh, preamble there, Ed? One other piece, man, and it's just that, uh, you know, once again, this comes out when I'm pretty much, you know, an adult, paying my own bills, all, all that kind of stuff. And that is where my, like, comics reading starts to take a powder in a certain way, where the previous eight balls, I might have read 15 times a piece. Uh, for this reading, this go-around for Cartoonist Kayfabe, this might be my third reading of Ice Haven, and it was so pleasurable, but there's just not enough time in a day to read comics the way I was able to uh, as, as a kid, and it sort of made me sad, but I was so happy to read this, and it is so exceptional. This was also one of those books, I, I remember a lot of discussion around this book once it came out, like all my friends who made comics, a lot of talk about it because it's ambitious and he's doing some stuff. Um, I, I read it. Uh, I read it while working at that call center, and then some other people like picked it up in there, and they were like, "I don't get it," because they have certain expectations of, of comics. The funny thing is, it almost goes back to what expectations would be, like Sunday Funnies or something like that. And uh, you, you'd think that in a way it would be more accessible, and uh, and that's what we're you know we start out with Random Wilder, a uh, self-proclaimed poet who has a rivalry with his neighbor, who is sort of the celebrated poet in, in this small town and writes for the local newspaper. Oh, like like this this rings true. And and Klaus, I, I often feel like he's exercising a certain level of demons and things. And uh, these people exist, like like in, in our little weird like comics world, there are these little peripheral satellite characters. You could often find them by they have maybe 1,000 tweets per follower that they have, and they are mad that, uh, you know, this person or that person has any kind of gravitas beyond them, and it's the universe's fault for why they're not in a better position, and every single, like, you can almost, like, diagram these panels and break them down into what Klaus is revealing to you about those characters. Like you can, there could have been an expository 
uh, dialogue bubble that would just be like, and that Ida so and so, my arch rival, blah blah blah. Like you've seen yes. that kind of Stanleyism. <laughs> I think I've done that. But just the kind of things that that he says. Uh, future historians will mock current editors of the Ice Haven Progress for publishing ad nauseum the florid banalities of Miss Ida's Wentz. And he's just using that florid purple purple prose that like we all like when we started writing our own comics as kids, you buy a thesaurus and you look for uh words to fit with uh extreme That's hilarious you know what and I mean? true. Like like that's that's the way this dude you know, nobody says puckish. Here's the other note. David Boring's the preceding eight ball story, three yeah. issues, glorious black and white, screen tones, the whole works, full color. Dan Klaus goes full color and it is masterful from the from just out of the gates. Like how much of a transition must this have been to go from you know, I, I know there were some color stories in eight ball, but this looks like a whole different direction where we're doing color uh, digitally and ambitiously, you know, from from strip to strip, from story to story, we're going to see different different palettes and just different approaches to that color. You see here the off-white paper backgrounds. Um, it's a lot to, you know, like, it just feels like his brain explodes in this issue. Every single uh, story that he put together in 8-Ball, just, it does lead to the next, you know? And he would play around with color, like you said. Uh, this Ice Haven comic leads to, to the stuff that he explores in Death Ray. Yeah, yeah see, probably, see our video on death row. Probably the culmination of this this idea of ganging up a bunch of strips and, and putting them together for, for a greater kind of narrative. Our children and their friends. This is going to be uh, one of the characters that we see again and again. Charles, um, I don't know that anybody's exactly a main character, but he's probably in that upper you know, ensemble of, of main characters that we see the most of. And these are, uh, you know, these are school kids. This is, I think, a nod to Peanuts and Charles Schultz in I, some of the designs here. I was thinking uh, Stanley, you know, like the the, the uh, Lil Lulu kind of yeah. panel progression. Yeah, I think that's probably true, true as well. Um, and you'll see a lot of that throughout because we're going to get different styles from story to story and character to character. So probably a lot of I don't know about homages, but you'll see some influences, you know, shining through. Great, great dialogue amongst the kids and stuff. Hey, want to <laughs> fight? No, you probably never had. That's because you never made love to to so and so, and then so and so comes, comes, comes by. That's right. And he tells Charlie, like, if you say what I said to, about her, I'm gonna push you down. <laughs> <laughs> right. The biggest threat that a kid could come up with. Even just bouncing the ball, I feel like, is kind of fun, uh, fun kid kid logic almost. He, he does different bounces, like bouncing it off his elbow. I've done that when I was a kid, I, I don't know, a million times over or under. Yeah, good for you, man, because like, I would see adults do it and try, and that, <laughs> that would uh, just not work out. I wonder if I was older than a little kid. <laughs> I might have been a uh, teenage, getting up in my advanced, advanced years. Leopold and Loeb, uh, this is a tr early true crime. And you see kind of the salacious paperback, you know, with the red edges uh, on the edge of the paperback and then telling their story about getting away with a murder. Yeah, yeah. Like a pretty literal um, transcription of, of, of events. Uh, but this is, you know, the olden days version of hard copy or a current affair or something. And this bears fruit several times later and i think that like when we get into the jean benet bits that like that's the modern day uh kind of um dissemination of this kind of information and 
I adore so many of these panels, you know, like disposing of the body here. That composition could have been a splash page. And then if he were alive today, Bobby Franks would be 91 years old. It's such a weird, like that's your David Lynchian sort of, it's a bizarre detail to put in. It it's, is. It, I love it. It's great. But it's such like a, I don't know, give this guy life. Like, <laughs> like, like make it that the victim is a real person, you know. There is that. And then there's the way that Klaus draws it. And he, the guy looks pathetic. Yeah. And it's almost like, ain't it a good thing he escaped this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be a Klaus <laughs> comment on uh, hu humanity there. How about that title lettering on every strip? Jimmy? Oh, man, that's what I'm saying. It is just, it's eye candy, it's visual information, and it's oh, gorgeous. Oh, by the way, like, you know, this is the end of this. And this is the Alan Moore transition to the modern day version with the TV screen showing off the Jean Benet ransom note so that's the transition from old salacious dissemination to the modern day version do we spoil things uh yeah yeah fuck it this is a 20 year old comic so wilder is our kidnapper yeah and and it's worth noting because of course great transition but you almost imagine this is him getting the germ of this idea <laughs> you know watching watching this uh, expose on television and, and he comes up with this is the plan and uh, even the ransom note is something that we're going to hear referenced uh, later on in the story. Is it spelled out that he is the kidnapper? Like he wrote the ransom note, and I wonder if 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 it was just a thing where he is trying to trying to get some kind of shine, like one of those kind of goofballs. That's interesting. You know, I don't know. They, I always understood it that he was the kidnapper, but I was looking for evidence of that going through this reading and did not find it. So it may be just something that the idea was planted in my head. 20 years ago when the, when I first read this and you know had discussions about it and now I've just accepted it but you're right it's never explicitly stated that he is the kidnapper yeah like I like I I always read it as like he is a kind of um the kind of douchebag that like this the people that come out of the woodwork when tragedies happen and this is his way to get his work published on a on a wider scale and of course he's a boob it does it doesn't go well for him like they just cut promos on his on his floridity on uh, talk magazine shows. And I assume he's watching The Honeymooners here. Yeah, Ralph. And I mention that because of the nostalgia of that, because we're going to see other elements of that nostalgia. And I think that that's part of Random Wilder, a big part of Random Wilder's character is that kind of, uh, he, he just doesn't fit. You know, he just doesn't fit in society or in, in contemporary society. Here's, uh, here's the, evidence going toward your direction man where he starts writing the letter to uh miss arulio i would like to strangle your horrible insolent children <laughs> that's a little unhinged it is and that's the, the, this children are his neighbor playing practicing in their band and you see like just what a zero this guy is yeah you know crawling uh to to anonymously put this note in the mailbox and not be seen and an, an anonymous note speaks for everyone yes and on his way back, spies his nemesis, and uh, who could it be? Her granddaughter? Yeah. I feel like that's a fun moment, too. It's a little bit of that voyeurism that I think creators have. You know, you talk about Klaus cutting promos on different types of characters, and a lot of it, I think, is probably could be aimed inward. In, I feel like this says a lot about how uh, cartoonists go through life just kind of observing. In interviews. Or, or writers, anybody creative yeah in interviews i forget who it was either klaus or where they would say that uh you know they obviously knew where each other lived and when they'd be coming home late uh at night from some sort of event or whatever uh going by one another's apartment 
seeing the light on it too in the morning, knowing that they're drawing comics in there while the other dude's slacking and just feeling horrible. <laughs> That's so funny. That's almost a sports story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The sport equivalent is knowing Jerry Rice is up at four o'clock running heel sprints. And yeah, stuff. dude. Listen, man. All right. So uh, 17 with Violet Vanderplatz. All the names are great, too. Yeah. I always laugh when friends of mine will tell stories about, like, their high school friends and give the full names, and they all sound made up. <laughs> or, or, like, the greatest writer's idea of names. Uh, this has a little bit of that quality. And she is Charles' older stepsister. Yes. So, uh, again, one of the... the I, you know, maybe they're all kind of prime players. Her, Everybody's a star in their strip. Yeah. Her, her her boyfriend's Penrod, which is another one of those names that uh, conceptually you know and have heard. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, she's dreaming of a better life away from her mother, stepfather, stepbrother with this uh, with her dream guy here. And again, beautiful lettering, like the little details, making these notes, complete panels. Yeah. It's so cool, like blurring the line of, this is a caption in, in most comics. But it's so much more than a caption and execution here. Shouts to John Kuramoto helping helping uh, Uncle Dan out with his technical, uh, the technical part of his his gig because we're seeing like two different like line colors with the line from the the notebook plus the you know pen line mm -hmm. from her character, and that could have gone sideways several different ways. You probably got to use close to a hundred percent plate of those blues just so that it doesn't get weird off register. The printing on the, all of this is so beautiful. Like there's nothing off register at, at anywhere ever, but um, you know, there's technical work that has to be done there. It, it could have been drawn on several different sheets. Uh, you know, there's, there's stuff at play. And again, we, you know, this ongoing ransom note background element and talk about themes, like visual themes. We, we have ransom note on television and then cut to her journal or letters that she's writing. Just a nightmare sequence, man. Like, so Violet, have you made any more friends besides <laughs> the fat girl? <laughs> yeah, and, and calling him Paul. It's just, it's all awkward. Every, every element just feels awkward. The little glory hole is probably like, the, the thing that you remember most from this comic. And then, then, you know, the next day she's just like, imagining her fucking asshole stepdad like peeping on her and then to see mm -hmm. like this panel through the glory hole is uh you know that's that's a that's a good narrative piece it's it's like you know it's in the back of her mind so many of these pages read to me like each like you could just take this four panel piece and that's an amazing comic strip yeah i'm scared penrod like sure Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, pretty intense stuff. Uh, a very different feeling, too. Like, to go inside her head, you know, by having her letters and stuff, it feels like the tone is different. Yeah. This is one of those things, like, we talk about Klaus building on past successes. Call back to Ghost World, where it's like, you're able to channel, uh, you know, like, the voice of a teenage girl. What kind of writer are you? It, it's true. And, and uh, that's the thing about his work and the things that he's able to pull off, certainly in this issue is uh comics comics like leans toward leans toward the, the the spectacle and like that's how comics are sold in a lot of ways man cool drawings like bombastic imagery but there is like a world's worth of like interpersonal stuff that we've all experienced that really hasn't been explored in pop culture and 
and and it's right for the pickings there there's there's a million different things that that um could could be harnessed and put into a comic that have never been and there might be a one of those on every page yeah. of, of of this man and it just has never been done in comics before uh, because it's 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 a it's a small moment in anybody's life or something but he puts it down on paper and creates this like it's like a universal truth or something man it's it's stuff that uh everybody has experienced or has at least observed just never talked about it so to see it you know on display here it's it just it just roots it in real life or something yeah it's really special it, it's really well said there because of the different points of view that he's bringing with these characters i think that's where the the life part that's the life part i feel and the cartooning part is just the masterful pace and the way he chooses to just you know share that kind of information like like this kind okay so like the sexual intercourse part right mm-hmm. where the little dude is like fixated and he's trying to be highfalutin like we'll see him several times through the comic and by the way this is Chekhov's glory hole uh, <laughs> because because you don't introduce it in act one if you don't pay it off a little bit later so this guy's like highfalutin uh trying to be sort of above the crass and vulgar uh biology that everybody else shares you know he's going to be above it so this is his idea of like sexual intercourse and i totally remember like little kid liars and stuff when we were kids like yeah man i put it inside and, I, and we just went to sleep that night and <laughs> i was in there the whole night and every and everybody's impressed by it like and this is you know this is a version of that it's so fun it's almost the like the school dance <laughs> <laughs> And just the iconography of just that line, like of course the little dude would, would if he if he's if he's right thinking and and you know had, doesn't have access to Windows ninety five computers yet or something. That's funny. Like that's what you think that that shit might be. And we finally see our Ice Haven Progress newspaper <laughs> with the uh, with the big announcement that David Goldberg is missing. Kid should have been tossed a, down the well just for wearing that kind of mohair shirt. <laughs> <laughs> what is that, man? That's true. That's a good observation. <laughs> And you can see Charles is, is uh, imagining his buddy. This is almost uh, the sidekick in Death Ray. It is. Yeah, it's, it's totally that relationship. And this is where the Leopold and Loeb book kind of comes into play because his brain is immediately going to that place uh, where this kid gives him this book about Leopold and Loeb, talks about how it's like, the, you know, the perfect crime and shit. And then, uh, you know, this goofball show, shows back up with his Mo Howard part to his hair. <laughs> He just automatically assumes that the boy uh, dispatched of Dave Goldberg and homeboy corroborates it. Yeah, and, and, and lets out that his dad's a cop and he said it's a perfect, perfect crime. Yeah. Man. So the boy's just like, I got to get rid of this evidence man, because <laughs> cops are going to come here. They're going to see that I have this Leopold and Loeb comic. Like that kind of like young guilt feels right that makes it sense. does i also see these panels as, as lynchian and that it's such a like fantastic setting like where's he at this isn't a is this a window is this some kind of shoot that he's dumping it down like it's just it's in his head you know it's such a oversimplified like comics language version of just got to get rid of it <laughs> it goes back to sleep and still can't get vicious <laughs> thoughts out of his mind yeah it's, it's so funny to imagining his dad is like you've got this book therefore you must be guilty so here's a here's a new bit uh, i actually have never read this. like now i'm gonna have to go get ice haven because <laughs> i didn't realize that uh there was actual fresh comics like i know that there was like little silent pieces here and there 
Yeah, there's a couple of these uh, spreads. Maybe, maybe there's at least one other one that I'm aware of in here. Cartoonist Kayfabe is sponsored by the comic books Ed Piscor and I make. If you want to support Cartoonist Kayfabe, pick up our comics and books wherever you buy them. Starting with Red Room, the Antisocial Network, Season 1 of Ed's Murder on the Dark Web for Fun and Profit. Trigger Warning, Season 2 is now in stores everywhere. This is Issue number 1, Issue 2 also available, Issue 3 coming next month, and uh, available wherever you buy comics, except for banned in seven comic stores. Uh, hopefully that number's not rising, but you never know. Well, you know what, the cool thing about it rising is that the bigger comic shops heard about that stuff, tripled their orders, man. <laughs> nice. WYSIWYG, A History of Computer Hacking. X-Men Grand Design, the Grand Design that started them all, including Hulk Grand Design. Can't wait Three to see what... oversized volumes of this available. Can't wait to see what your cover looks like when you put yours together, Jimmy. And Hip Hop Family Tree, a history of hip hop available in four treasury sized editions or two beautiful box sets. You can pick up my latest book wherever comics are sold, Hulk Grand Design Monster. This is in comic shops everywhere now with some beautiful variant covers, a retelling of the 60 year history of the Incredible Hulk, and coming in April, Hulk Grand Design Madness with uh, also some beautiful cover choices here by Ed McGinnis and Jeff Darrow, as well as my cover. Again, the 60-year history of the Hulk distilled down into two very dense uh, oversized issues. Plain Janes, the first young adult comic graphic novel here in America by Cecil Castellucci and me. And Street Angel, Deadliest Girl Alive, which just went out of print from Image Comics, Ed. If you guys at home see Street Angel, Deadliest Girl Alive on your comic shop shelves, pick it up because it is no longer available for order. But the original Street Angel hardcover oversized uh these are kind of like director's cuts almost like artist editions i think they're the nicest books ever designed these are all still available from the publisher you can get them wherever books are bought and sold and now back to our regular scheduled programming i feel like this is around the era of the uh, famous ivan brunetti comics journal uh, interview where he where he made the the statement that shot across the world, man, that 22 panels that always work by way of Wally Wood are 22 panels that don't always work. It isn't what you're supposed to do. It's what you do if you're given a whole bunch of text from Al Feldstein and you have to make these little squares interesting for yourself. Uh, and and uh, Brunetti's thesis is simplification. Ernie Bushmiller his, is his, his top dog. Iconography. Keep it simple, stupid. Uh, Keep your characters uh, the same height. Don't don't give in to just like all the camera angles and that kind of nonsense. Yeah, I remember from that interview that idea of the characters being the same size is it creates animation yeah. across your panels. Yeah, and he and he would create his strip like his backgrounds and stuff like on like one long kind of almost like a scroll of like the landscape uh, or the panorama of the inside of a house. And then just copy and paste, or like, you know, just move it and lightbox it, the parts that you need. Yeah, right. Because you're keeping the same camera angle also. It's a really good call for this particular strip, or this spread, because you see it in both of these strips, Paula and the Leopold and Loeb. Yeah. Uh, that idea of like same size and kind of expressions and body language being the uh, the main focus, because you're not you're not going crazy with camera angles. Yeah, yeah. And it's the thing, like, you know, for, uh, Miller, Miller would talk about it, like in the Eisner-Miller book, like, how do you stop... How do you stop a reader in his tracks? Like, how do you control the pace? And he would talk about the kind of vulgar ways of doing that, you know, pile on dialogue, pile on detail. Uh, but he says the sweet spot would be to just kind of dazzle people and, and, and keep them wanting to, to sort of observe. And he would cite things like Calvin and Hobbes. 
these strips kind of do that. Yeah, it's very funny watching Charles's face as Paul is like describing, uh, for his sake, I hope he's dead. It just gets worse, like each panel of what she says, and you see Charles becoming more and more agitated as he's listening <laughs> to it. Very subtle. Vita and her grandmother. So this is the uh, the granddaughter that Random had, had come across uh, walking home that night after his anonymous letter to the neighbor and spying this, this young lady in his rival's house. She is also an aspiring writer. So we are once again now going through another character's kind of point of view and reading her words about her zine, yeah. which she hopes to publish weekly, which is pretty fun and makes a lot of sense to... Uh, I think I might have got this at Mocha, or at least had a lot of conversations about it there. And it feels like this is just you're just feeding that crowd. Oh, totally. This. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, man. Like uh, certainly at this point in time, you know, after I quit that call center, yada yada, I um, I was a zinester, and I was giving giving books to different shops and yes. and cataloging Pete's them. books. Yeah, yeah. Again, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a perfect title, right? Might as well be Copacetic Comics, and keep a track for consignment purposes. So she falls for Random Wilder's uh, poetry, is what we have here, and becomes this huge fan. You watch her now turning that voyeuristic uh, lens around on him and following him around. And this is one of the things that people would cite when they were trying to decipher this comic as to Random Wilder being the, uh, the kidnapper, as he's going into the basement. Uh, why is he doing that? You know, And he's taking a bag of food into the basement. Right. So that's one of our clues. Mr. and Mrs. Ames, Detectives for Hire. This uh, strip, there is a uh, half-hour documentary video that I think the, some British producer made, I believe, where they're following clouds around. It's called, it's called something, that, something in Paranoia. Yeah. And it's real cool. They get like this super tiny um, camera that they put on the tip of his his ink brush and you see the lines the ink lines coming out of of his brush like it's very captivating but he reads some of the mr ames mr and mrs ames stuff and kind of breaks down uh what what he's getting across with with the characters um after he reads some of the dialogue like i i totally recommend checking that out and and uh, in a certain way to me it's what i had in mind uh, with the channel whenever we like start breaking stuff down and and talk about it a little bit further because i wanted to hear every single word he had to say about every single panel you know it was just such a tease <laughs> yeah it's a wonder there's not more of that but i can also understand cartoonists not wanting to go that uh i don't know that explicit on on what these how what their intentions are with these panels this is fun because as a fan of like crime fiction and noir you get a little bit of that with anytime you have a detective show up and uh you get to see, of course, Klaus is not going to do anything that is your cliche stereotype or trope, but you still have a little bit of sense of that. You know, this is almost a different version of Random Wilder where the neighbor's making noise through the wall of the hotel they're staying in. And uh, what does that result in? Gun to the face of the neighbor. <laughs> right down over here. The, these people have almost, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Ames have almost nothing in common. Yes. So, so it begins with like getting different kinds of food. And this is, you know, this is Chekhov's uh, dining experience or something, man, uh, because they establish, you know, she she likes a certain kind of food, he doesn't, so they have to go to where he likes. And there's payoff to that also. Man, I had coworkers like this when I had my day job. 
it was just when it would be time for you guys to go to lunch together. Or something. Not only that, like they they were at my wedding, and his his wife ordered some kind of drink, I forget what, and he came back with a totally different drink. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, my my cartoonist friends that were around observed that whole thing and had to relay it to me. <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, it's great, and that disconnect is is solid every time we see them, which is amazing because we don't see that much, but we're going to learn a lot about their relationship in just a couple of pages. Yeah, yeah, and especially that. That last that last piece, man. Like this would be absolutely unbearable. With, like this guy's delusional. Yes, and he's and he's fully cucked out too, man. Like just he can't. That's there's there's a there's a Nabokov book, and Nabokov comes up a lot in in Klaus right. interviews and stuff. I forget what it's called, but it, but it's a uh, it's like a it's a it's a, a comedy. It's like absurdist or something, and it's there's this guy who runs this like chocolate factory, chocolate business, something like that. And he's got this wife, and there are always these guys at the house, you know, the pool boys and like all this kind of stuff. And they're absolutely fucking this lady. And but he always has like a plausible reason for why the both of them might need to be in the bedroom at the same time and all this kind of stuff. And it's kind of a version of that. Right. Now we have Charles with uh with, with his little neighbor buddy George and uh George's stuffed rabbit friend. Yeah. It's it's funny to see, you know, like like this is this is kind of that classic newspaper strip idea too, where like the kids are at different levels of maturity. So you have like one kid who's eight giving advice to the six year old. <laughs> <laughs> hey man, you live a healthy percentage longer than oh than, yeah, you know so much more about the world. This one color approach, uh, I'm sure it would have been. Uh, visible, maybe, maybe you know, on a signature in a magazine or something like that. I've I've seen this kind of. Oh yeah, before. this was... I can't think of, of uh, where where I would see this kind of approach in old comics, but in my life, this would be like, the back of like Remco toys, where it would have like the gray, yeah, uh, corrugated cardboard kind of backing, and it would have the black, and it would have a plate of like one other color, but it's that dark brown cardboard where it's like, you might as well not have even bothered yeah. with any of that color stuff. You know where you see it now are risographs because sure. so many risographs are two colors. So that's an easy, well, relatively easy printing job. Whenever I worked at a printer, our press was two color, our offset press, which again was kind of common, you know, four color was much more expensive in the past. So you would have these kind of like two color uh, presses would be relatively common in a small shop. and that's what you would get you know like how can we use that two colors to it's uh you want to get your money's worth so use two of them the you just go back real quick uh the the kind of aesthetic of this strip isn't it's hand lettered but it's not far from uh, barnaby kind of uh crockett johnson style and crockett johnson does get a call out yeah it's, in it's this... wild uh that, that crockett johnson gets called out in this but you're right about the barnaby um futura the the font that Barnaby was set in, but another cartoonist that I've heard Klaus talk about, and no accident since we're going to hear the name dropped yeah. on this, you know, in these pages. So return to Violet, Charles' uh, older sister, stepsister there that we saw in the previous panel at the end, and uh, now her Penrod has finally showed up. Yes, man, and uh, she she might be, like, in terms of full-fledged characters, I, I feel like Klaus put so much energy into this violet character because it's 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 all magic man uh from the part where she's you know teenage girl so obviously she's going to get to that place where she's lying to her folks now about going here or mm -hmm. going there i expect you to be home by 3 30. no mom i have french club and then the next panel you see her with 
fucking pearls <laughs> and like nightgown type so earrings. So dressed up in class. So ready to go. But they're going to like the Burger King or something. Yeah, right. And to like one of those like shitty motels that has bed bugs and, and stuff. They, he, she's never, you know, she's so in love with this Penrod character. Still have never consummated the relationship. But at this point, man, she's ready to go, man. She's like, fuck it. But she has certain insecurity. And this, I feel like this rings true, man. Like, you know, when you're a kid, the first time you're naked in front of somebody, it, it's, it's kind of a, a big deal. And just the insecurities of teenage life, period, uh, can screw up a, a intimate moment. And she just has a birthmark right by her nipple. And she's going through so much stuff inside of her head about how she thinks that everybody would, you know, think that she's a monster or gross or this or that. And the dude is like, come on now, you're like, you're nuts. It's not, not that big of a deal at all. Like, I feel like that's stuff that that everybody goes through. And, and that's what I'm talking about with Klaus, where he he can just, he zeroes in on that stuff. Yeah, definitely. This whole spread, we could have almost done an episode on. I'm in love with this panel, just the drawing of it, how close his face and eyes are to her. Like, it almost looks like it shouldn't work, but it's great. Yeah. And we've talked about, um, I think Bill Griffiths talks about, like, pupils. Yeah. And, you know, having your eyes right. This whole sequence in the car where she's not looking at him and, like... It's just masterful stuff. Really strong. So she's eloping with this dude. She is, <laughs> and and uh, but there's but she's still like nobody knows. And when she gets back home, she's a changed woman. You know, you you see all that stuff in like Sopranos and 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 shit like that, where it's like get laid the first time. Now now you're a fucking adult, so I have to throw away all my like beanie babies, <laughs> right, and the shit like that, man. Cause I'm a I'm a full grown adult now, and I'm gonna like tell off my parents, and uh, you know get get ready get ready for the next phase of life. <laughs> you don't know anything, <laughs> <laughs> so shut the fuck up. She used to put what, what, what every uh, teenager has said. <laughs> Maybe the one stereotype Klaus leans into here. Because you got to do it, and then you got to get burnt, and then you realize like, oh yeah, your folks are actually kind of right. They're not as dumb as you think they are. You did some dumbass shit. And you got to pay the piper. Yeah. So uh, our Mr. Ames goes to investigate this this missing child, and he goes to Harry Neighbors, comic book critic. <laughs> this this feels perfect. This is like the perfect indictment on comic book lovers, like people who indulge in these you know relics of their childhood and yes. stuff. Uh, it's a child that got captured, so we got to see with this old pervert who's into comics, like little kid stuff. What other little kid stuff you into, fella? And always an opportunity for Dan Klaus to cut promos on ElfQuest. How many times has he done that in the pages of 8-Ball, Jimmy? Yeah, that, that Four, feels five, like, a, maybe? Like, a, like a rich... It's, it's almost a disappointment that superheroes are so dominant in comics, because I think a lot of alternative cartoonists would love to take their shots this direction. He's, it's, he's from the era also. You know, Lloyd Llewellyn, magazine-sized. What were the other magazine-sized books that were out there? Uh, Love and Rockets. That first gen of... ElfQuest was that mm -hmm. also. So when you're trying to find, you know, when he's going to travel the country or something and see uh, where, where uh, Lloyd Llewellyn is penetrating, it's that one ratty box in the back of a comic that's shop. Right. What else is in there? That's, that's exactly Some right. Some fucking ElfQuest comics. <laughs> that's your rivals. It's the Bane. Like, I have my Banes. You know what I mean? Like, there, there are things that came out around WYSIWYG time that I would be nestled right next to. I can't stand it. It's so true. 
but the Harry Neighbors character is just perfect. And and the panel with the Elf Quest. You know, if a comic book is presumed to be art, then can't we also presume that it is made up of qualities inherent to its chosen form? Like just like getting getting <clears throat> philosophical. Yes. It's great. And uh, notes that his wife has the same beret. Yes, uh, <laughs> a barrette, the little ha- the little hair right. hair clip. Um, yes, that's another... strange. Do you have a girlfriend, Neighbors? <laughs> <laughs> no, n- no, I don't, sir. <laughs> So Mrs. Ames, man, she's putting in that work. That's a clue. That's a clue. Add that to the clue file. <laughs> yeah, and of course, like the the detective would be ob- so observant to like little stuff like that, but not see what's right in front of his own fucking face. Forest for the trees. Yes. Rocky, one hundred thousand BC. Uh, Fred Flintstone, one hundred thousand BC. It is, but uh, it's more specifically a tin toy that was a bootleg of Fred Flintstone, you know, an unlicensed Fred Flintstone toy. I had no idea about that. that. existed. Yeah, it, it, like there's a spinning mechanism that, like the body is, sh- he's shaped the same way. Mm-hmm. And the body kind of spins around and, 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 and moves. Uh, I heard about it from Klaus in, maybe he just mentioned it on an NPR thing, but you could go on, uh, you could go online, type in, and it's called Rocky, really like type in Rocky Tin Toy. Uh, maybe there's an image of it up on screen right now. I don't know, um, but uh, it, you could find it easy. And and Klaus is good for that. You know, laughing, laughing, spitting man. Like that's a right. real object. Like the little girl blowing the bubbles in velvet glove. Like that was a toy. So just kind of keeping up with that kind of motif. That's so funny. It's like a postmodern HP uh, Lovecraft kind of thing where you're putting in this lore that kind of becomes real because it's repeated in different places and stuff totally. like that. Uh, this is a fun strip. He gets mad because this one other caveman is always in a good mood. And he's like, what's his secret? Mr. S- Mr. Sunshine, I'll kill him. Yes. <laughs> now no one's happy. <laughs> <laughs> it's so perfect. Like it's, it's, you know, these people and, and this is, you know, this might be the ancestor of some people I know. It's, it's pretty funny stuff. He's always mad. He lays down by the waterfall and then he complains about that noise. Yeah. It just makes again, too- random wilder. <laughs> yeah. 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 Maybe it's what randoms, uh, ancestor and of course the the connective tissue is like he's in the inhabiting the same space so we're going richard mcguire here yes. right here no pun intended <laughs> uh <laughs> i can only hear the pun yeah i know and then we have another kind of alan moore transition he digs like a little mm-hmm. pathetic little hole right before he dies i also like like i'm age 20 i'm at the end of my rope <laughs> like, that's so that's perfect. true uh i've stolen this panel several times go for it rock <laughs> this is a line out of Rocky. <laughs> it's that it's that leg breaker that pays him to go around and collect money for him. And right. about halfway through the fight, he's like, "Go for it, Rock!" <laughs> All right, back to back to our kids here and uh, talking. I killed David Goldberg. Yeah, scary scary moment for uh, our young Charles. You can even see like he's he's standing back, and they're visiting this hole, throwing rocks in it. You know, where's the bottom? You, you hear the sound eventually hit peeing in there. And uh, that's where he would dispose of the body is his what he's revealing. Right, right. Once again, I've stolen this kind of panel a bunch of times. And uh, the defensive body language, so good. Uh, it does transition. Here's a bigger hole from that tiny hole. Very effective whenever you're doing like, okay, Ivan Brunetti, we're talking about these same size figures moving throughout. But then we do vary up the camera angle. This like super worm's eye view, almost literally from a wormhole. Yeah. And it, it pops, really delivers. <clears throat> our aspiring writer and our uh, 
unappreciated writer meeting in the streets. She gives him his work, or her work, her latest uh, zine, you know, kind of an appreciation of him. And uh, he throws it aside, doesn't even look at it. Right. This feels, again, every uh, small press show you uh, that I would ever do in my younger days. And then you meet that cartoonist you look up to and hand him your work. That's probably where it ends up. Yeah. <laughs> Most of the time. Yeah. If you... Unless it's John Byrne and then he hands it back to me. <laughs> <laughs> and his life of, uh, you know, he's, he's got to get back to writing. But instead, what's he do? Some yard work needs done. Um eating going to bed early cleaning out screens no writing this is yeah this is a, this is another piece of like the zinester who can't transition into like the bigger kind of cartooning career or, or whatever it's like they know all the steps required but life always gets in the way there's always a reason why they can't do pursue it do this do that I like this thing too. We see him laying here talking about my life is fading away, which in some ways, you know, call back to Rocky. But also we see Charles in this pose a lot. Uh, you, you know, we see Violet in this pose a lot. Um, very obvious. Everybody goes to bed at night or at some point and lays there and thinks and kind of contemplates. But it gives it this nice kind of rhythm throughout the story where we keep seeing these different characters and moments of reflection. It, and it's self, it's self delusional reflection. As soon as I finish this, I'll go straight to the library cut to the next panel and this is another day mm -hmm. you know yes. this is another day that this guy is not pursuing his his goals and making excuses for why he can't accomplish the things he wants to tomorrow i've got to go to the library next day temptation island <laughs> <laughs> and and by the way this ranks so true when, like once again yes moment in time like when this stuff comes out like i'm at that call center and just slowly developing my chops but really being zapped for the day and, and not making any real good comics. Uh, dear God, can a week have gone by already? When I finally quit the gig and uh, was like, I'm fully pursuing comics as a career, yada, yada. Um, there was a week that went by pretty quickly where I'm just like still hanging out with the same people, uh, doing this kind of same routine that I've been doing. And a week went by really fast and I didn't, move forward with making very much comics or something and right then full stop chilling on the video games chilling on frivolous parties and shit like that gotta put the nose to that grindstone man and get busy it's the human observation that i connect to the most in Klaus's work because i mean that shit rings true yeah it, it hurts to admit it sometimes but also like you see these things that are unflattering and you see them in yourself mm -hmm. those are good moments <laughs> in a way maybe wake-up calls. Um, this clerk at the stationery store, this is kind of fun too. Again, keeping with this idea of like, imagine a Sunday page where all the comics are connected to each other. So we've got like one panel, one one line uh, strips. Yeah. You know, like that, that classic kind of four panel, three panel kind of gags. He'll do that bit like, 20th Century 8-Ball comes out around this time also. Yeah. And there, the extra material mm -hmm. that he would put in there uh, would be this kind of thing. Like, there's the mm -hmm. Wallywood strip, and then there's the one called Tits, mm -hmm. where just everybody says tits. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he would do this sometimes, like, in letters pages, you know, almost like filler space. Yeah, good stuff. Um, just kind of picking up little notes here and there. One of them is uh, his wife uh, wants to go out to a fancy dinner, and he's like, you know, I hate asparagus. Yeah, she wants asparagus as part of her gimmicks. And then goes to Officer Kaufman, who we've established earlier. And then he goes, oh, my wife has the same underwear. <laughs> <laughs> P 
pretty pretty uh pretty obvious there we're really getting into some some territory man that's like willful ignorance or something on his part yeah it will more self-delusion like almost all of these characters violet with her with her husband uh a little charlie with his his sort of um pretentiousness against humanity but being a fucking little pervert and yeah this is his sexual frustration of uh violet moving into his house and not being able to do anything about it and beating the shit out of this rabbit this stuffed rabbit (laughs) yeah traumatizing his poor little neighbor (laughs) great cartooning on that neighbor like when he starts seeing the the violence towards his little little guy yeah it's real fun his his circle those blank eyes come to life (laughs) yeah it's great and again Charles, poor George, so innocent. You know, six-year-old little uh, little, little George <laughs> just has no idea what the future holds. It's great, man. It's like it's like Phoebe Cates with Jennifer Jason Lee in Fast Times at Ridgemont High, where she's the one giving like the younger kid tips because she has a twenty-five-year-old boyfriend, and then and then uh, you know when the question is like asked to Phoebe Cates, who's supposed to be like the more senior of of the the more experienced, like you know, have you ever had orgasms? I think so. Like you know, you know what I mean? <laughs> right. Blue Bunny. This is a fun strip too, I think, because it's one of those like first time reading this, I was like, "What is going on? Yeah, where, where did we make a turn?" And of course, you know, it's it's George's uh, imaginary, well, stuffed stuffed rabbit. Yeah, but but it's like this is the one strip that just seems like it's the it's the for fun uh, strip because yeah, it's the it's the little bunny, but like it's like the one piece that really doesn't um, add to the rest of the world, but listening to the Aaron Sorkin uh, master classes, he would talk about how jealous he was of um, the Coen brothers because in every single film, there's one scene that can be taken out, doesn't need to be in there, but it's a scene that makes it a Coen brothers movie, doesn't necessarily drive the narrative forward in any exceptional way. So I, I think of this as like the Coen brothers scene where it's awesome Fucking love the strip, man. Top of the world, mom. Yeah. Little Jimmy Cagney, uh, but it it doesn't fit tidily into everything else. Yeah, and you know this is like the poet and her granddaughter, right from the beginning. Yeah, they certainly look like those two characters, anyway. So, and we see our our officer. Yeah, that, uh, I'm gonna call him Stube, Charles' little friend, and his uh, his dad, the police officer. Yeah. So like you see these characters that are that are in here interacting in a way, mm. and it kind of makes me wonder like, is this is this random Wilder's, you know, not an alter ego exactly, but but say his id. Right, sure. <laughs> because, you know, we cut from here to random Wilder. Mm-hmm. So. But not uh, in Ice Haven. We have another new strip that uh, you'll have to fill us in on that because I did not read this. This is Kim Lee. This is um, the convenience store guy who we see like one page or one strip of here. Now it's blown up into uh, like a full on strip with this character and i don't know about these expanded sequences in terms of story i don't know that it changes the story all that much if anything it just probably fleshes out ice haven and some of the regular characters that are around ice haven so right. that's kind of how i'd classify this a little added value so you spend 18 dollars. <laughs> random wilder finally grabs uh his neighbors his granddaughters uh zine about him you i feel like you're bearing the lead a bit even though it's called toilet time and we Go should ahead. up the dude gets home gotta gotta make a bm yes can't hold can't, can't hold out much longer this is one of those things that that uh you know this days of yore before the smartphone or whatever 
like people would might might uh shuffle around looking for some new stuff to read whether what they're doing the work he's going through everything i'd settle for a gardening calendar catalog <laughs> that i haven't read and happens upon her zine reads it fucking have an existential crisis is like this is amazing i'm a fraud i'm a phony <laughs> i'm no artist i've wasted my life i can't bear to have it in the house yeah it's great it's great. Throws it away. How many people read this book, Dan, and felt that way about their cartoons? <laughs> oh, this is interesting. Uh, playing along, like, inverting the the panel uh, kind of like lettering by um, making the mm -hmm. title stuff the color rather than... That is interesting to that. me because it feels like such a small detail. Like like something bothered him with this when he was like, you know what, the next version, I'm not going to do it that way. You know how it goes. I do. Let's, I take, do. let's take a look at that whole grand design book <laughs> when it comes out and make those same claims. Man, I was going through it last night and being like, I might redraw this one page. You know, that's a slippery slope. <laughs> so this is little Charles's fantasy is about mm -hmm. how it could be possible for him to reconnect with Violet in a romantic way. And, of course, what would be required is the divorce of the parents. So yes. he's preparing to gaslight his folks. How far should one go? How far should one individual go in pursuit of his own happiness? And he's reading Planting the Seeds of Divorce. <laughs> it's like a reverse parent trap. <laughs> so funny. He's also real funny when he imagines himself as an adult. You point to the, to that one, but I point to this one because that that there are cartoonists who have, like, baby heads but have like adult bodies and shit man his future fantasy is so weak too he doesn't look too special and she's like working at this futuropolis diner <laughs> well you know that's attainable like if yeah if, if she's maybe. you know jeff bezos wife or something <laughs> you probably won't have a shot thank god our parents divorced years ago that's ridiculous uh, so the ransom note, they're on the local television broadcast here talking about what they have found, Mr. and Mrs. Ames, that is, in their investigation of this missing child. And uh, very critical of the ransom note and how it's written. Pretty cool that, like, you, you know, Klaus had to choose the right, the way to, to letter it so that you can get all the important bits. Like, all the, all the most important adjectives are visible uh, with the cutoff dialogue balloon. So that you get the full gist, uh, and and the words that are used: too derivative, juvenile, old-fashioned traits, like like it's all this stuff that subconsciously like goes through your mind when you just read the random Wilder inner monologues and stuff. You know, like like we talked about earlier, using a thesaurus too much, yada yada. Like through this dialogue, you know that that's random Wilder, right? And that's that's not easy to 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 sell. Plus, also, like he's he's famous for saying that, like he being Dan Klaus, that uh, he doesn't show anybody any of this stuff until until it's ready to go to press. So, so that's incredible. Yeah, he's so he's taking leaps of faith, and really has a respect for his reader that like I can omit enough, like they'll get this part right. without without that. I would hope that something like that. Is talked about when he's kicking it with um, Adrian Tomina and like Richard Sala at the at the diner or something, because that's that's a big leap of faith if you're doing it without any kind of tether. And there is tension 
like even that little bit of dialogue from like the the television show host is being like, so what you're saying after all that is that you have no idea who wrote this. And he's like, what you media don't understand is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's great. There's so, there are whole scenes implied by, you know, half of a sentence fragment there. Talks about his inner monologue about how he's attracted to people in trouble. And uh, possibly, you know, referring to his wife and how things have kind of uh, changed in their relationship. So you wonder if, if he's some scumbag private eye that who knows how he originally got involved with this woman, right? Right, right, yeah. And, yeah, and yeah. now that they're in these different roles, it's like husband and wife, maybe that dynamic's completely different. And this is the uh, callback to the asparagus. When did you eat asparagus? <laughs> and there she is. Like, that silent panel is everything, man. It's like she's, like, you know, formulating her thoughts. How yeah. am I going to sell it to the dude? It's funny, too, because Klaus does a lot of these kinds of panels. They're very still. They're uh, almost overly cartoonish, almost a diagram of cartooning. I think about like how to draw comics the Marvel way or showing this panel to an editor at a Marvel DC company and how much they would just be like, I don't, I can't do anything with that. See the Archie Johnson shoot interview <laughs> when he takes stuff to Axel Alonso. <laughs> he says, I can't do anything with this tin tin looking bullshit. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Random Wilder continuing his existential crisis throws his writing in the toilet. Literally. It's, it's the, uh, Alan Moore transition in a, in a way, man. Like he's he's watching the results of uh, good call. I don't even think about it with these two face to face, and we cut to a, a man and woman face to face, and a response that you could imagine Mr. Ames throwing out. Sure, but but he's but he's also watching the tube. So like with all the stuff he's saying, like like a derivative high schooler. Like he just he just finished watching a TV yes. show. Yes. Yeah, it's it's bad. His neighbor's granddaughter's a better writer than him, and now now these detectives are on television criticizing, <laughs> critiquing his writing. It's so great. Oh man, it's fun. Running his car in the uh, in the garage. Can't even get his car started at first. Has to call the neighbor the neighbor kids who he criticized earlier in their band to come over and get the car started, and uh, it's it's no use. Twenty minutes later, <laughs> too drafty in there. Again, going into the basement, right? Sure. And David Goldberg is alive. He was locked locked up in a room for a week somewhere. Yes. By some creep. We see the people of the town. We don't see Random Wilder, so that's evidence toward your gimmick. For sure. Yeah. I guess this is Kim Lee, who the expanded piece is, the uh, the convenience store clerk. Okay, yeah. Um, so I don't know if... You know, Klaus was thinking we need more of this character because you know, who makes, is this guy? Yeah, it makes sense. It makes <laughs> sense because uh, he's just a random guy to me reading the issue. And to get another Kim Lee piece. And fantasy, right? This is a fantasy panel. Probably uh, visually noted because there's no border around it. You know, the color palette's different. But this is just her fan. And, and you can even see what she's wearing is different. I know, can, like clearly, it's fantasy. I can make the argument that one can make the argument that the entire piece is uh, a fantasy. The fact that, like, it, you know, she's, she, she wrote a happy ending for a tragedy of the, of the town. That's interesting. Because, I mean, like, what is that? You know, that's, that's, this is Dr. Seuss or something. You know, this is, like, right yeah, after the Grinch. I've never read it that way, and now that makes me wonder, like, do other characters acknowledge that Goldberg is found alive? Gotta read it again, man. Wow. You know, this part, you really thought I killed him, man. No offense, but what a chump. I do think Goldberg comes back. I sure. think that's legit. 
but yeah, this kind of like the town joining in hands and singing, definitely uh, fantasy, but it's such an oddball fantasy. I would guess this is just her imagination from, it would be positive, you know, the missing kid shows up intact and not damaged. I feel like there'd be, that'd be a good feeling in town, so maybe that's what she's responding to there. Yeah. And uh, our children revisited where we reveal who's actually <laughs> using that peephole. Yes, and in the uh, strip where he's beating up the 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 bunny uh-huh he says something about his like unsavory uh something or other like he basically he he, he calls to it uh somewhere i am given solace only in furtive and unwholesome reverie the purity of my passion distorted like that's what he's talking about yeah yeah, man. That's the other thing that's amazing with this book is like you can flip from page 25 to 33 and several places there are those things where it's like, you know, pages of going across strips, uh, even crossing characters, but getting these callbacks and almost like if you put this serial killer style, like I'm going to map this out on the wall with, with color thread, you could do that throughout this book. Yeah, you know what? Here's another part and it might be worth mentioning. Now, this is a pure conjecture. I have no idea cloud's process with putting this this book together but this is post ghost world the movie uh you write a screenplay that thing has to be written and rewritten per producer notes many times mm -hmm. before it gets that gets the green light so he has the experience of writing and rewriting and rewriting with that at the very least maybe he he already explored that with with comics work previous to that but the tightness of this and the way stuff pays off many pages later uh leads me to believe that this thing gotten got tightened and honed like he spent a lot of time at the at the at the computer in like writing this thing out before really putting pencil to paper on on page one strip one yeah i i can't imagine doing it any other way but i would be curious to hear him talk about that because I, I don't know that i've heard that part of his process for this particular book and when i read interviews and he talks about process he often talks about how like his process varies a lot from book to book exactly yeah. but this feels so tight i don't know how you do it without really mapping it out in detail yeah yeah but given a lot of polish there's also a lot of what feels like i don't know intu intuition you know with some of the details so i don't know i'd be curious to uh to hear hear some of that from him and it'd be weird too uh whenever we do finally talk to him because it's like at this point over 20 years old so what do you remember dan <laughs> probably remembers all of it you hear like athletes that are able to recall games he's specifics clean. he's so. clean living yeah so uh we're getting our resolution now from these various characters violet is uh is you know accepting that penrod that's not going to happen that's not going to work um turns out penrod's a scumbag men are scum uh, her mom's getting a divorce, so they're they're moving on. Poor Charles left behind. And this is one of the coolest pieces for me in this book. This is her trying to remember exactly what Penrod looks like. <laughs> I love it. I like that is such an out of left field visual concept in this book. There I don't know anything else that's quite like this. Sure. Where it's like really leaning into what is art and drawing and cartooning and imagination, memory, all of these pieces. And it's this crude looking drawing, you know, like the least effective drawing in this book, but also it's an illustration of an idea. Yes, yes. And, and, and I, it's something that speaks directly to me. Like, like when I try to recall certain people's faces, it's definitely muddied up by 
the people I've seen on TV over the years and walked past in the street. You know, I, I know that my recall is hazy. <laughs> Such a bittersweet ending. I hope someday I grow up and marry a guy just like you. <laughs> yeah, just totally like <laughs> dish your little man. Poor Charles. <laughs> Love the computer coloring. And he's coloring in his line work there with those darker oranges. Yep. It's really nice. Yep, doing the stuff that he kind of mastered with uh, with David Boring by mm -hmm. on a separate piece of paper, you doing your feathering, turning that layer into into a, a color in this case rather than uh, the grayscale right. that would have been done in uh, David Boring. Vita, once again... I don't know whether this is fantasy or not, but she had been sending her zine to various mail rooms all over the place, and one found its way into a, uh, a Hollywood producer's hands, and so she's headed to Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. Bef before this part, like, like I guess when uh, the, when uh, Little Goldberg was was discovered, she knows that her zine, like she thought, she thinks that she's trash because even Random Wilder yes. threw her shit in the trash. How does she know that? Because she's going through his effects. That's right. She's she's digging through his stuff because she's a big Randall Wilder fan and, and all that. And uh, worth noting also that Vita Goes to Hollywood is the false start graphic novel that Klaus was working on. Uh, was it maybe before, before Patience? Uh, and some of these pages, the pages that he did, are in the Dan Klaus Studio Edition book see our video on on that right yeah yeah that's a good that's I, I thought this was familiar and i was trying to place it that's that's interesting makes me want to go back and revisit all this stuff sure yeah i yeah. mean we're going to <laughs> that's true and harry neighbors explains everything this is incredible because uh one of the staples in eight ball comics was always like the buy stuff page yes uh back issues book collections prints uh little enid doll that's what this page like sneaks that in yes even with the address here like you know send 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 away here to get this stuff um his mailing address this is this is wild don't this bother is such go, cool stuff don't bother going there turns out it's just a mailbox so so of course like the top half mm -hmm. is sort of the epilogue to to the the, the the comic so it's like fanographics didn't publish the graphic novel pantheon published it all this kind of this is the indicia uh in a in a certain way right so how did they handle that in ice haven uh you know this is a book so you got to have your about the author page and this is where Klaus would always talk about in interviews like i created harry neighbors to be like a comics critic but he loves me. <laughs> and here's uh, further evidence of that. You know, this guy waxing intellectually about all the virtues of the author. Yeah. Genius. And there, and there's uh, the Klaus family with little, little Charlie Klaus. Yeah, super fun. And inventive. Again, I mean, this is an ad page in the original comic, essentially. Right. Pretty good ad. I'm just looking at uh, this, this Harry Neighbors about the author page. And he's got... And Dan Klaus has these things, man, in his own studio. But but uh, DC, the early works, <laughs> K, K through three, fourth through seventh grade. <laughs> oh man, Ed, this thing's amazing. Oh yeah, I mean, when when we talk about like the great comic books, like this is this is on the short list. If it's not if it's not number one, really. And the couple more like little pages end off with these guys yeah and you know one of the noteworthy things for me is 
this is 2001 original publication date. We're starting to see reprints. We're starting to see appreciations of comic strips. Um, you know, comics are sort of changing the way they're viewed. It's all in Ice Haven. Yeah. Like all that stuff informs Ice Haven. Like it's a big change from the previous issues of Eight Ball. And if you think of Eight Ball as a series, like the early issues, it's almost unrecognizable how far he evolves. Absolutely. But it just feels like this is a guy who is really just comics. I think that uh, the guy who kind of instituted the idea of doing these like single strips that that unfold into a bigger way, um, you know, w- with this kind of group would 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 be Chris Ware, of course. Yeah. And this is Dan Klaus tying it all into into like a single book, and you get to see you don't. It's not like seamless like Jimmy Corrigan is, where you just get like you know the the comics content right. But this became kind of a trope for a little while, oh, like yeah. like w- like when I. S- started doing uh Wizzy I started doing WYSIWYG like right after this and started doing like those single strip kind of kind of things. You think about the two or three Seth comics that he did in his sketchbooks and things that uh would have be mm-hmm. the single page kind of kind of strip deals. And then Klaus, you know, continues to do that with with Death Ray also and and even Wilson really. Like every strip is kind of like a single yeah, single page strip. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and we check in on David Goldberg, returned back to his house and uh, getting ready for, for nighttime and sleeping and doing some poetry recital there that starts with bring me your Nortons, your Cramdens, your housewives and sewer men. Feels like he's he's he, he overheard some random wilder poetry there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's 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 good evidence, man. And uh, even the end page is thoughtfully designed. We saw it was daytime in the beginning. You know, this is, we're waking up in Ice Haven. We're going to bed in Ice Haven. Day in the life, man. What a work. I, I think it works both ways. Um, you know, as, as like a, if, if you were just picking this up, like I, I think it's a pretty satisfying book kind of story. Absolutely. Uh, presentation, everything's great. The comic just, it blew my mind when I first read it. I could not wait for a new issue of 8-Ball at that point when they were coming out. And... I was so ill-prepared for it. It was just like, oh, shit, comics language has changed. This uh, this issue of 8-Ball, and this would be my luck uh, throughout throughout my, my young life, man. Uh, this this was the first issue of 8-Ball that I got, like, on my pull list. You know, like, when I have, like, a regular job and I can, like, afford as whatever kind of comics I want. So, of course, when I go down there and set up my boxes, of course, 8-Ball is going to be high on there. Because before that, it's just, like... I'm randomly going to grab one and have like sticker shock when it's like, oh, I got to pay $7 for a comic, you know, like I was a broke little kid. Uh, so, of course, there's this one and then there's uh, Death Ray, Say La Vie. I thought you were going to say the comic shop was pissed because it's a little bit bigger than a regular comic that so doesn't fit in the pool box neatly. Got him in, uh, got him in Phantom <laughs> of the Attic and, and they, they seem to be one of those stores that figure that part out. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Jimmy, super inspiring to go through Cloud's work. Not the last Dan Clouds we're going to look at. It, it's it's all going under the microscope eventually. We're three years into the channel, we've got to be at least half dozen vids about his stuff with at least a dozen more to go. Let's get out of here, man. Yeah, you know, let me say one more thing. I would highly recommend this too. If, if you haven't read Dan Clouds and we have looked at a lot of it, this is a great place to start. Yeah, yeah, it's good. It's, it's good for the, like, the comics kind of aficionado who who might not have fucked with this. I do say that for the people who came to the channel by way of of uh, Wizard Magazine, 
his comic, The Death Ray, is going to be the That's one to, to bring yeah. you into the game because this is a little bit, uh, you know, there's there's no there's no big moments like the stuff that like the superhero kind of fan would be used to. I would hesitate to, to recommend this to, to to them. That's fair. But the Death Ray would be <laughs> the one to transition them into these comics. Well said. Good to go? Yes. Okay, Fabers, like, follow, subscribe to the YouTube channel. Hit the bell. We'll notify you when new vids are available. What's out there, man? Hulk Grand Design Monster number one is out there in comic shops everywhere and selling well. Thank you all for that. A retelling of the 60-year history of the Hulk. And if you haven't picked it up yet, tell your comic shop you want one. They should be able to still get some in stock. It's not completely sold out yet. At least I haven't heard that it's completely sold out yet. And you can join me on patreon.com slash jimrug. Red Room Trigger Warnings, uh, issue one and two are on the stands as we speak. Banned in seven comic shops, but what that really means is that it's a behind-the-counter affair, a paper bag <laughs> affair. You ask for it, they're getting you that comic. They want your money, I promise you that. Murder on the Dark Web for Fun and Profit is the name of the game in Red Room Comics. And you could read uh, the social network, uh, the anti-social network, which was the uh, first season of Red Room Comics in trade paperback form. Uh, available right now and you can read all the comics before they hit paper uh, at my patreon patreon.com slash head three bucks for the archive there put up the strips before they hit paper uh, and you could get to all these links in my link tree in the description below this video what else jimmy subscribe to the cartoonist kayfabe e-newsletter at the links below this video you can also find cartoonist kayfabe t-shirts and merchandise at the links below this video that's another great way to support the cartoonist kayfabe channel jim given those marching orders will be on our way read more comics